0: Two massive financial entities are set to own almost everything, as one financial publication put it. And there's much to suggest that these asset fund managers wield their enormous power to push left-wing causes and ultimately Marxism onto the world. I'm Paul Dragu and this is Freedom is the Cure. So today we're discussing BlackRock, one of those financial entities. BlackRock is the world's largest asset manager. We'll look at the connection that suggests BlackRock is working to bring about Agenda 2030, the UN's one-world totalitarian government plan. An asset manager, in case you're wondering, manages assets on behalf of someone else. The idea is to ensure the client's investment doesn't depreciate and does quite the opposite. We're going to look at how BlackRock uses its vast influence as the middleman to cram wokeism down the throats of corporations in order for them to push those values onto the masses. We'll talk about BlackRock's direct links to that Biden administration and the Federal Reserve, and we'll examine how BlackRock advocates and pushes climate activism. Joining me to discuss this fascinating and vital topic is Dennis Parent, a researcher and the publisher of our affiliate magazine, The New American. Dennis also happens to be working on a book that explores exactly what we're talking about. Dennis, thanks for joining me, man.
1: Thanks, Paul. Glad to, glad to be here talking with you today.
0: So let's start with uh, this wokeism aspect. So it's safe to say anyone with at least one good eye can see that corporations uh, are a bit of a, on a social justice binge. Many maybe don't know where that pressure is coming from. Does BlackRock have, have some sort of influence in the wokeism that we're seeing from corporations coming today?
1: I think the answer is both simple and complicated at the same time. Simple in that, yes, of course they do. They have trillions of dollars that they invest. And with that trillions of dollars comes uh, a similar amount of influence. Uh, The complex part is that uh, wokeism is not uh, simply to be found in corporate boardrooms uh, and spreading into the corporate uh, culture in America's companies broadly, but it's also manifest in our educational institutions all the way down to you know early grades through high school and college. So there's more than one stream by which wokeism is having a significant impact on uh, the professional culture uh, in America. But certainly uh, when it is represented by a company of the influence and size and scale of the investments that BlackRock can direct, then that has a major role, in my opinion, on the appearance of wokeism in corporate America.
0: What does it look like? What does BlackRock's influence toward wokeism look like?
1: Well, in a general sense, if you have trillions of dollars to invest, you can invest in America's largest, most influential companies to the degree that you have a very substantial influence on how boards are elected and how CEOs are directed by those boards. And so when BlackRock can have six and seven and eight percent of the shares held in very large companies. Uh, So for instance, say Disney or Microsoft or AT&T or ExxonMobil, that that number of shares held uh, by BlackRock through its investments uh, comes with consequences with regard to how that company, BlackRock, can then influence the boards of directors of the companies it invests in. And BlackRock is very upfront about it and says, they absolutely want to influence those, those boards of directors. They absolutely want to influence corporate management because they're interested in moving forward something called stakeholder capitalism, which is no longer based simply on maximizing shareholder value and returns on investment uh, in the sense of just pure dollars, but is also based on three criteria, environmental, social, and governance, what BlackRock calls ESG.
0: Does BlackRock's influence, is it restricted to the financial on these corporations, or does it go beyond that to to government and policy?
1: Well, it definitely goes beyond that because BlackRock's not merely interested in earning money for its shareholders. Of course it is. It wants to earn money for its shareholders and it's been wildly successful in doing that. But uh, Larry Fink, who runs BlackRock, is the co-founder of the organization, has been very upfront in his communications to uh, the companies he invests in. He writes a letter every year uh, that he calls his letter to CEOs. Uh, His 2021 letter to CEOs is available for you to read at blackrock.com. Everyone can take a look at that. Uh, And he's very very upfront about what the company's goals are and what he wants to accomplish, uh, particularly around areas like um, global emissions and climate change. He spends a lot of time talking about climate change in his 2021 letter, uh, and specifically, you know, saying that you know the companies they invest in, they want those companies to be fully involved in fighting climate change. Which, of course, is not just an issue having to do with climate. There's a heck of a lot more going on in the so-called climate change. Uh, effort that these companies are making uh, that goes far beyond
0: moderating the planet's temperature. Well, you mentioned that, stakeholder capitalism. That's that's a term that's also used in the Great Reset. Now, you mentioned Larry Fink, uh, the BlackRock CEO. He is uh, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Is it important for any reason?
1: Well, if you've been uh, reading the New American magazine for any length of time, you'll know that the Council on Foreign Relations is the primary source of so-called expertise that informs State Department policy in the US government. Um, And it informs that policy in the sense of advocating for and working toward greater degrees of internationalism. So international collaboration, both with um, multiple nation states through multilateral treaties and through integration with world bodies, especially the United Nations. Uh, The CFR has been the primary non-governmental organization and think tank uh, that's been working to achieve those goals for many decades. So uh, it's entirely consistent with BlackRock uh, and their goals for Larry Fink to be involved with the Council on Foreign Relations. Absolutely. 100% consistent.
0: What, what about the fact that BlackRock's got uh, people from BlackRock within the U.S. government?
1: Yeah. You know, BlackRock has been involved with U.S. government... Uh, efforts, particularly financial efforts, Treasury efforts, and Federal Reserve efforts for many years. Uh, Their ties uh, go back to the Obama administration, especially in 2008. Uh, They were involved in some of the elements of uh, Treasury maneuverings and Federal Reserve maneuverings from the 2008 financial crisis, and they continue to be uh, tapped by the Federal Reserve uh, today to do some bond purchases and management of bond purchases for the Federal Reserve. But uh, additionally, there are uh, you know, former employees of BlackRock who, you know, we talk about in some cases the revolving door between uh, regulatory agencies like the FDA and the pharmaceutical industry. Well, we have a revolving door in the sense uh, with uh, government agencies that are financial based and financial Organizations like BlackRock and BlackRock has employees, uh, former employees who are now you know key people in the uh, Biden administration. And Larry Fink himself had said, and I don't have that quote directly in front of me, but basically said he's available to advise the Biden administration, you know, whenever they call on him. Uh, so very close ties, uh, de- definitely directly influential with regard to how the current administration uh, wants to manage the economy.
0: That seems like. There would be some sort of conflict of interest there.
1: Well, yes, you would think so, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and observers have pointed that out with regard to uh, what BlackRock, uh, the, the role of BlackRock with the. F- the bond program that it's involved in, and it seems a little bit like, well, should they really be involved in a in, in that program when they're actually making investments? Yeah, <laughs> but uh, they're they're too big to fail, I guess would be the the, the way to put it. So uh, you can't really antagonize them. They did that. They, they're a lever that the government wants to use to achieve its ends.
0: Well, and speaking of too big to fail, it's been it's been reported for years now about the size, the mammoth size of of BlackRock, and it's usually mentioned in in the same sentence with uh, another asset fund manager, uh, Vanguard. We're talking
1: many trillions of dollars here. Um, I don't have the figure right in front of me for BlackRock, but it's been said that they uh, have $9 trillion of assets under management. Vanguard is of similar size possibly even slightly larger. Uh, Vanguard's a little harder to get at the root of because of the way its ownership structure is set up amongst its funds. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, there's been some speculation as to, you know, what's actually taking place with Vanguard behind the scenes. But we know a lot more about BlackRock uh, because it's more of a traditional organization. So, you know, its its leadership is Larry Fink and you can see its, its directors and its key management personnel. They're very happy to tell you who those people are because they're proud of them. Uh, and of course, they are high achieving individuals. Uh, but our question would have to be, uh, what are their achievements aimed at? And are their achievements aimed at the independence and success of the United States of America as a national organization, as a national entity and the people of the United States? Or are they looking uh, transnationally and not necessarily for the best interest of uh, American, the American people? And I, I think there's reason to doubt that they're interested in the uh, betterment of the American people. Well, I think we're looking at the transnational elite so-called that people have criticized uh, over recent years. Well, They invest in China, correct? They do have significant investments in China. Absolutely. I've seen the number of 137 as to the number of firms that BlackRock in China has invested in. But we know for a fact that they do have Chinese investments. There have been other people who have called out those investments and uh, questioned what the wisdom of those investments, particularly with regard to a couple of Chinese firms that are engaged in so-called security matters, uh, which is uh, a way of escaping the fact that when they're talking about security matters in China, you're talking about aggressive surveillance of dissidents, right. uh, such as the weaker. And um, uh, with regard to BlackRock's investment in a couple of companies that build those technologies, they've been called out. People have criticized that investment and, and said to them, you know, is that really an ethical uh, thing to be investing in? And it's a good question.
0: What, so what is their response normally?
1: I don't know that they have responded. Uh, the, there, there was an open letter. I don't have that in front of me, mm-hmm. but uh, you can go find the open letter that was written. Yeah. I don't know that they responded to that open letter.
0: Well, you, earlier you had mentioned... in this is a huge part of their platform in the West is this whole environmentalism. But it seems like that would be contrary to to China's approach to the environment. We know for a fact that China's probably one of the biggest, if not the largest uh, producers of pollutants. You know, they don't have the same standards as us. So it seems kind of uh, seems kind of too, uh, like they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. They invest a whole lot in the West and they talk about and they push these green values and then... They have invested in, the, in a totalitarian regime, like communist yep. China.
1: It seems likely that their goals are not purely uh, are not purely stated. That there may be other goals behind the scenes that they're working for. And you know, again. Some of that's just conjecture, but we do know that some of it's not conjecture because we know that they have a direct affinity for some of the goals that are being put out by the United Nations. And we know directly that Larry Fink, the head of BlackRock, is a a trustee for the World Economic Forum, which is, uh, in the world of business, is the implementing non-governmental organization Mm -hmm. for the United Nations 2030 development goals.
0: So Fink is involved with the uh, World Economic Forum, right? He He is. In
1: 2019, he was uh, added to their list of trustees. Uh, Let me see. I think I have here... I can tell you the exact date and the specifics about that if you bear with me for one Mm -hmm. moment. I have a great deal of information sitting in front of me. Um.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's mostly come out of your head. (laughs) Right. You've barely consulted it.
1: Yeah. So uh, 2019, um, Larry Fink was appointed to the World Economic Forum Board of Trustees. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is a press release for that. Uh, from the World Economic Forum. So yeah, BlackRock uh, directly tied to the World Economic Forum, and the World Economic Forum is uh, directly working to implement the uh, special development goals, SDGs, uh, that are identified by the United Nations for Agenda 2030.
0: The last podcast you and I did, (laughs) it also came down to Agenda 2030, I did a podcast with Art Thompson, who written a book on Agenda 2030, and one of the questions I had is, it's like, look, it always seems to come back to this, and you look at the 17 goals with the sub-goals in it, and you look around, and you're like, oh, this, this clearly seems to be happening, but for the naysayers or those who label us kooks, they're like, look, there's no binding power, and Art's answer was something to the effect that's like, well, there wasn't supposed to be a binding power on mass mandates and lockdowns, and, and that seems to have been happening. Now, would this be the first time a seemingly capitalistic entity like BlackRock has supported or been involved with a communist regime? Oh, no, not at all.
1: (laughs) Uh, Of course not. Um, You know, this type of activity goes way back. Um, You know, Anthony C. Sutton, Anthony Sutton did a great job delineating the many ways in which Wall Street uh, supported Various totalitarian regimes. Uh, you know, he wrote a book, uh, Wall Street and the, uh, you know, Soviet Union was that the title? The Bolshevik. But, you know, Bolshevik Revolution. You know, mm-hmm. he he documented that. Uh, he was a very careful scholar with the Hoover Institute for a time, and uh, he also documented Wall Street. He's one of the people, not not the only one by any means, but one of the people who documented Wall Street's ties to supporting the rise of the Nazi regime in Germany. Uh, so you know, that's a long history, and many many lengthy books have been written documenting how uh, moneyed interests on Wall Street, so-called, um, were more than happy to support the rise of totalitarian regimes historically. So we're not seeing anything new in in that sense. Um, I don't want to tie, you know, anyone particularly today to, you know, the horrible things that were done in the name of, uh, you know, you know that, that were done under Nazism or done under communism. Uh, you know, those things are not necessarily being done today, but it's nonetheless concerning that there seems to be a trend with, you know, Wall Street, not exactly averse historically to supporting uh, regimes that are yeah. quite uh, eager to stamp out freedom.
0: Sutton's, uh, I think, the Wall Street, it wasn't necessarily ideological in a sense. They wanted to tap into that market.
1: Well, I think they do want to tap into that market today. I mean, I think that that's uh, an attractive market, uh, particularly in China. There's an yeah. awful lot of money at the command of that's the Chinese Communist Party. <laughs> and an awful lot of people. It's huge. It's a huge market. But you've got to wonder now, what differentiates China from, say, India, Uh, because I've had some interest in watching what's been happening with regard to these two large population centers, Mm -hmm. and you don't see anything like the same level of manipulation going on with regard to India. And of course... Uh, India doesn't have uh, a communist government that has uh, at least historic ties to the idea of a world revolution. I'm not saying that the current Chinese uh, government communist party wants to see world revolution in the classical sense of Marxist-Leninism but they definitely have classical ties to that mode of thought and uh, that's not presently uh, well. They're outwardly really...
0: communists. Yeah, they are, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's a red flag. Yeah, and if ever are, there was one. <laughs> things are
1: different in China, so it's not just a matter. Or things are different in India, so it's not just a matter of saying, "Well, wow. there's two billion people in China, and that's a great big market." What about the same number, number of people in India? That's a great big market. India is a very, very well-educated country, mm. and there are some very, very sophisticated scientists, for instance, in India. I know some of them uh, people who've done amazing work um, in in chemistry and biology. And, and technology, uh, so I think many of the same characteristics that you see in China with regard to technical aptitude and you know, uh, you know interest and in hard work, those things are those things are in India too. Those company, those two countries are quite comparable in a lot of interesting ways. So when you see disparities of treatment, uh, between yeah, we invest them, in the
0: communist one. Yeah, interesting. That is interesting. So we come to the action portion of of the podcast where do we begin with this what what can we start doing
1: you hinted at it Uh, you hinted at it earlier I think when you said something along the lines of that we don't have uh, you know a direct police level authority imposing these things from the top down on the United States and so therefore it can be dismissed as not real but uh, it can't be dismissed as not real and for a very important factor that plays into the the answer to the question what can we do about it the the way in which these things are happening Uh, It was probably best defined by, uh, was he an Obama administration or Clinton administration guy, but uh, the name is Professor Cass Sunstein, and he wrote a book, Nudge, and that book was all about kind of basically modernizing the ideas of how you use uh, persuasive propaganda to get populations of people to do something. Uh, To put it in more everyday terms, it's how to use peer pressure to bring about what you want. That's really the entire program for implementing the UN Agenda 2030. And it's in the entire program for how it flows down from the World Economic Forum through BlackRock and through other organizations who exercise support for those programs in America's corporate boardrooms. It's peer pressure. This is the right angle to take. This is the right thing to do. You need to advocate for, you know, various species of wokeism, you need to advocate for climate change mitigation, you need to advocate for lower emissions, you need to advocate for more regulation, you need to advocate for a world in which you will own nothing and be happy, because that's the right thing to do. That's what right thinking people do, and it's peer pressure.
0: And that's the peer pressure they put on these Uh, corporations. Exactly. It's why they're so uniform in in their, their wokeism, their social justice stances. Yeah,
1: absolutely. No one has passed a law saying you have to think this way. It's just that every corporate CEO... It runs into that particular mode of thinking everywhere they go, and they think that's the right thing to do. That's the, that's the way right-thinking people think.
0: Well, didn't, didn't think in his letter, one of his last letters, outwardly say that he wants their clients to push to have these values, especially concerning the climate? Uh, yeah, activism.
1: Absolutely, he, and he made it clear. Made it very clear, and you will actually see in corporate boardrooms. You will see the adoption of these as corporate values that get turned into into posters and hung mm-hmm. in the walls in the you know halls of corporate America. And yeah. I've been there. I've seen it. <laughs> So all of a
0: sudden, you know, you come. Maybe you're not at the top of the rung. You come in to work, and all of a sudden, all these uh, these they're they're telling you, "This is uh, this is what we're going to do. We're going to start being social uh, justice activists." You know. You know, and
1: that's exactly how you get to where we are today with uh, all the actions that you've seen corporate America take since uh, last summer, with all the riots going on. That's how you get where we are. But therein lies the answer to your question: What do we do about it? Right. Because we have the answer, and the answer is. Uh, we know that a better world can be achieved through uh, the programs of the John Birch Society and through reading the New American Magazine and, and aligning with your family and friends over the values that you you, you hold dear as Americans. So faith, family, freedom. Um, we know. Uh, we know through economic theory. We know through years and years of economic study. And I'm not just talking about the John Birch Society here. I'm talking about. Ec- economics as a science, as a social science. We know that a free market allows for greater prosperity to be built. We know that people allowed to exercise their freedom to trade and to speak allows for a better civilization, allows for the building of culture, allows for the expansion of the arts, allows for the rapid development of beneficial technology. We've seen the explosion of the ability to care for millions of people who previously were lifted from had to be lifted from poverty in ways that they could never have imagined just a century ago. We've seen the salutary benefits of a free market civilization and a civilization that values freedom for the individual. And so that's a very positive and powerful message. And if we take that as a group out to people and say, you know, here's here's the worldview that uh, the United Nations and all of its supporters wants you to sign on to, but here's here's the alternative, and look at what can be achieved with the alternative. And The alternative being, let's just call it, freedom is the cure.
0: Whatever. There's the, no
1: there's no question which one is the one that works right. best. Um, one leads to tyranny. One leads to poverty. One leads to all kinds of terrible outcomes. One leads to massive increases in wealth, massive increases in well-being. Masses of increases in psychological fitness. You know, you feel better if you know that what you do makes a difference for your family and friends and you have the agency and can exercise your agency as a free person than if you're told what to do and can't leave your house. Let's say what's taking place in Australia, for instance. uh, You can't go outside without the police checking on you. You're going to have to check in with an app uh, every 15 minutes or they're going to send the goon squad to make sure you're not in an area you're not supposed to be. Who wants to live under that type of situation? uh, That's
0: amazing how fast that descended back into a penal colony. That's just crazy. Uh, That's why we named this, you know, going back to what you're saying, that's why we named, I named this podcast Freedom is the Cure because whatever the societal ailment, freedom is the remedy. Freedom is the Cure is something that came from the New American. I believe it was an issue that you had mostly written back in, was it May or March of last year, 2020?
1: Yeah, I think that had an April cover date, April 2020. That was our special issue on uh, coronavirus. That was the first first issue where we tackled it in the print magazine where we said, you know, lockdowns, uh, mass sanitary quarantines, uh, vaccine passports, mandatory this, mandatory that. None of these things are going to solve the pandemic. Uh, We were probably one of the first publications to take that stance. I think we've been adequately and 100% vindicated in that stance since then.
0: That seems. That's how I approach it. You know, you look at things. Life is complicated, and you talk, especially now with public health measures and whatnot. But uh, one way to always tell what what the right answer is, uh, freedom. Uh, Where is it on the on the freedom scale? Whether it be mandates, whether you know, even when with with climate, there's so much that they're not talking about in, in mainstream. So they, you know, most people don't know. There's there's so many books out there saying it's not settled. It's no. not settled. It never.
1: Well, you know, the whole like climate so thing is based on a, you know a few decades of minimal observation under questionable you know methodologies, uh, yeah. and it doesn't align at all with the geological reality of the Earth's changing climate. <laughs> so it's it's all fairly we, ludicrous. Basically. Yeah,
0: but all we would ask for is that they don't get the same amount of time. They just don't. I saw an interview. I think. Uh, last week, and this is an example. It's not about climate change. It was Tyson DeGrasse, I think. Neil, what's oh, yeah. De, 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 Neil DeGrasse, right. DeGrasse Tyson. Yes. He did he, he did an interview with Ben Shapiro. And Ben had one basic question. What does the science say about gender? And he wouldn't answer it. He would not answer it. He's like, he went around, he's like, oh, what is your purpose? Right? He. My point being is that Those who are supposed to tell the truth, they either won't or they won't be allowed to. And this happens with many, many topics.
1: Well, there's your peer pressure again. Yeah. I'm sure that... uh, That's
0: part of it, exactly.
1: He knows exactly what the science says and just is afraid to say it out loud because... He'll be driven out of the public sphere, and he'll be— He
0: won't have those shows on National Geographic anymore. (laughs)
1: He'll be entirely castigated by all of his peers, and and, and everyone will have to get on the bandwagon of castigating him. Otherwise, they themselves will be thrown under the bus uh, for their lack of hipster wokeism, and— you know, you get into uh, self-censorship, which is really a dangerous precedent for a free society. Uh, it's, you know, it's only one step removed from government censorship, uh, you know, but it has the same outcomes. And uh, what's worse? I mean, in, in, in either case, censorship is uh, an evil to be opposed. Uh, as publisher of a magazine, I 100% support the First Amendment and everything. And uh, you know, even when been, you don't like it, right? Uh, even when I don't like it, we'll we'll definitely work to make sure that we protect people who are saying mm. things we don't like because we value freedom. Whether we agree with someone or not, we value their freedom as much as our own because we're all in this together, and everyone has the same rights and responsibilities that everyone else has, and those things need to be protected. They were fought hard for for many millennia, right. and we're only here uh, on the backs of that much labor, and it would be
0: a scandal of uh, world historical proportions if we allow our freedoms to expire. It seems like a default position, and historically speaking, uh, tyranny is a default posi- Has been. societal position. I mean, we've had this for maybe 100 years. Depending, Some would argue that things could have continued to go downhill for a while, and you know, we don't have the same freedom then. Who knows when? At some point in America, but that seems to be. We always seem to reel back. So going back to that, it's what do we do? It's like subscribe to the New American. So first of all, you you kind of you're up to date with what's going on, and, and then use that knowledge to organize and to speak out.
1: This can be very simple. You know, I know from direct experience in a corporation that I've been involved with that I know of, where there were many freedom-minded people who were afraid. To say openly that they were in favor of freedom, they were afraid because okay. they thought they would be drummed out of their job or they'd be facing you know peer pressure repercussions in their job. But the fact is, <laughs> these people were probably as close to a majority as there were. I right. Mean, uh, but they were under the false impression that they were a minority and they had to keep their opinions to themselves lest they be you know facing some consequences. So the message from that is, don't be afraid. You there. You have a lot you have a lot more support than you think you do. You have a lot more people around you who agree with you in terms of the value and importance of freedom than you may realize. Um, And I think this is true whether it's in your business, uh, your job, or even in your own neighborhood. You know, many people don't know their neighbors these days, uh, or as well as they might know their neighbors, compared to, you know, years past in, in the United States, go out and meet your neighbors because I'll bet you, I'll bet you any money that <laughs> a lot of your neighbors are going to agree with you too and they they, they value freedom.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: so once you start realizing that you're not alone out there, now your job is to show other people that they're not alone either. And yeah. once people realize that, hey, hey, you know, freedom is popular and, you know, then the peer pressure starts flowing the opposite direction. And yeah. that's the
0: way it needs to go. The crazies, the people, you know, who, who do want, you know, this globalist, totalitarian world with all sorts of rules because otherwise uh, the climate will all kill us and everything will be terrible. But there's more of us out there who who aren't like that. Right. We like life. We like the way America is, you know. Uh, Not that everything. We've incrementally have improved the things that weren't great. Uh, But they just focus on those things. They exploit them uh, to throw the baby out with the bathwater.
1: Yeah. And those people, I think, that want to do that, they're in some ways lacking in vision. Uh, and a good example is the population control debate over the past century, which by no means is something new to us today. Literally, it's been going on for many decades. And all of those folks, uh, they all believe in the you know, methodology or the findings of Thomas Malthus, who wrote that population increases geometrically while food and resource production increases arithmetically. And so we run out of food and resources to feed our population. Uh, when in fact, People are the most complex thinking machines that have ever existed and we have, whenever there's been freedom, particularly in the Western countries, uh, we've innovated ourselves into a position where uh, our forebears who were worried about a population explosion that we couldn't feed could not bring themselves to ever imagine the fact that with eight billion people on the planet we make more food today than we can than, than we can
0: eat even in our eight billions well that's clearly evident go to a grocery store look at check out the documentaries the problem uh, the ones that emphasize what's the problem oh we throw away too much food I think the numbers yeah. somewhere like 40 percent
1: so the fact is that under conditions of freedom people are very creative. they're they're incentivized to be creative and to innovate, those innovations lead to the betterment of everyone else. It goes back to what I was saying before. Uh, The worldview of freedom is much more powerful Mm. than the worldview of tyranny that is being
0: uh, promoted to us from the top down and uh, and it's aligned with our human nature absolutely i was born in a communist country and nothing came out of there ever since had been communist because they kill the human spirit totalitarianism helicopter governments whatever you want to call them too much kills the human spirit because if you you have red tape everywhere and you you lose incentive you, you start if you start to lose incentive, you stop creating, and that's why so much came from the west obviously just yeah. just look what just from American in itself in the in a hundred years you know we brought light and trains and uh you know co- computers and the internet and I mean we changed the world,
1: yeah, I just think of the uh settlers in the American upper midwest and the west who Came to an area that was 100% undeveloped from Europe, um, in many cases sparsely or no population whatsoever, and they hacked a living of their own, you know, through their own industrial yeah. industriousness out of the bare land around them uh, without any government support, without any government help. They received no subsidies in most cases. Uh, what they did, though, is they formed communities of That's people right. who traded with each other. Uh, hey, Mary Beth. The next 40 over, she had a bumper crop of cucumbers and made all these pickles. Our potatoes did really well this year. We'll trade, and and everyone had plenty of potatoes and pickles. Those informal networks, you know, they led to these farming communities. Farming communities led to having communities who would celebrate great harvests. Mm -hmm. You know, we have some uh, vestigial remnants of that if you go to... um, south dakota and visit the corn palace for instance the corn palace is the last remaining uh, example of one of these buildings that was built out of you know harvested corn or wheat uh, to celebrate the successful harvest in those areas where grain were was grown
0: built out of corn cobs or something it was yeah Yeah, and you can still visit the corn palace
1: today and it's an it's a neat thing to see Uh, so these are vestigial examples of the you know the way in which uh, americans working together right. without government subsidy, without government help, oh. but just through industriousness and freedom, we're able to carve out a, a successful place in the world. They didn't need a tyranny to come down and say, well, you can't do this on your own. Yeah. Uh, here's some money, but by the way, in order to get this money, you're going to have to do thus and so as we yeah. say.
0: Jump through this many hoops. Contort yeah. yourself this way. That's not how
1: this country was built. This country was built on freedom and hard work. It works everywhere it's tried.
0: It was the greatest country ever built. And I know the evidence for that is you simply look at the millions of people who decided to come from all over the world here. Now, here is this narrative that this was this terrible, terrible place. If it was so terrible and they're still coming, they came from all over the world to america mm-hmm. america was the the promised land for for those who suffered and and everyone's human spirit told them again people like my dad he wanted to come to america because this was a place where they left you the heck alone and you were the master of your destiny yep. and they want to take that they do they do everything they you know it seems like all these all these regulations all these rules they they intend to take Literally, take your freedom and take your, and kill your human spirit. I don't know how else to put it because that's what it is. That's what it is, you know. Any last words to this?
1: Don't let it happen. Don't and, let it happen. We don't have to let it happen. We have the Constitution on our side. The Constitution, you know, provides limitations on the, the way in which government can pass regulation and, and force it down our throats. Yeah. Uh, we want to make sure that the gridlock that the Founding Fathers built in place to keep regulation from being, uh, you know, tyrannizing the population we want to make sure that that stays in place so you know be a good american practice civics as it's no longer taught in your classrooms Uh, get out there and advocate for your representative to do the right thing Um, you know just be a good american work hard uh, you know love your neighbor as yourself um, and uh, you know the world can be a good place and we have the right program for that you have the right program for that as an american i'm optimistic for the future despite all the terrible things yeah. that have been going on because you know america still exists and as paul has just pointed out people from around the world are still trying to get here we can make this a great country yeah. once again for
0: sure we absolutely can and and if you have any if you don't know where to start you can start by going to jbs.org at jbs.org we have a a mountain of information on various topics and we have action projects uh, if you want to get in on various projects to get with a committee to to work on a certain aspect of what's happening, a certain item. uh, And then you you can get in touch with one of our coordinators. We make that very easy. You get, you you email one of our coordinators to get a hold of you and they'll see about membership and getting plugged in and getting plugged in because America matters. So go to JBS.org and next week we'll be talking about the silver linings of COVID, because there's been a lot of awakening and people are realizing that America is in trouble and they're realizing they they don't want it to fall. So uh, see you next time, guys.
2: Are you concerned with where America is headed? If not, you should be. So let's get busy on solutions. At the John Birch Society, our staff and members have over 60 years of experience in pushing back on outrageous abuses of government. Our tools are truth and education. Our methods are tried and true with scores of successful operations. Join together with the tens of thousands of members of the John Birch Society nationwide to make a difference. We have professional staff strategically placed all over the nation and will provide the training you need to be a success. We will provide the materials you need to be a success. We will provide the esprit de corps that comes with working in concert with tens of thousands of members nationwide on the same goals. If you want a bellyache and do nothing, don't join because we don't want you. But if you're a patriot, and you love our country, and want to preserve the blessings of liberty to the next generation, then we need you in the fight today. Not soon. Today. Let me clarify. Today. Go to JBS.org and get involved right now. And remember, the Constitution is the solution.